Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast. James Baldwin once said that artists are here to disturb the peace. Through our Short Fuse conversations, we engage with artists, writers, musicians, and individuals who have a lens on what is happening in the liminal space we find ourselves working through. We reflect on and interpret the role of the arts in transforming and bringing our communities together. I am Elizabeth Howard, your host. On Monday, October 23rd, I was in conversation with Justice Malela, author of The Plot to Save South Africa, and Johnny Steinberg, author of Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage. Their books look back at Winnie and Nelson Mandela through the lens of time, history, access to archives previously unavailable, and interviews with individuals who could also reflect on this period of time in the history of South Africa. This is a live recording of that evening at Cafe Lafayette in New York City, and you will hear background noise. Thank you for listening. Well, welcome. My name is Elizabeth Howard, and I want to thank all of you for being here. And I would like to thank Yuche Udense, who's standing in the back there, and Jerry who's the director of tourism for South Africa, who's also in the back there. Um, because they are the people who found this space and the South African government has underwritten this, so I want to say thank you. And I would like to also just introduce uh, the Interim Consul General from South Africa. Stand up and I hope you Say hello to him. Thank you. Justice Mulela is here, um, is one of South Africa's foremost political commentators and the author of the best selling book, We Have Now Begun Our Descent How to Stop South Africa Losing Its Way. He's been a columnist for the Times in South Africa and has written for the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, Financial Times. Johnny Steinberg is the author of several books having to do with the transition from South Africa to democracy. He is a two-time winner of the Sunday Times Alan Patton Literary Prize, which is one of, the, one of the most prestigious in South Africa. He also was the inaugural uh, winner of the, and as I said, Johnny, when I knew that this was the Wyndham Campbell Award, but it's now the Donald Wyndham Sandy M. Campbell Literature Prize. Um, he taught, until 2020, he taught uh, African Studies at Oxford in the UK. He's currently teaching part-time at Yale uh, African Studies at the Yale University Macmillan Center for International Studies. Um, and he's a visiting professor at the Wits Institute for Social and Economic Research in Johannesburg. Um, this spring, there were three books that came out. Justice's book, uh, The Plot to Save South Africa, came out in April. And then Johnny's book, Winnie and Nelson, A Portrait of a, Ma of a Marriage, was published in May, along with uh, Jonathan Ives' book, A Biography of Martin Luther King. It was it was really interesting for me to read these three books almost together and because what it gives us is an opportunity to look back through through a different lens and through history at these extraordinary lives. Um, and the authors had an opportunity to have access to archival material. It was interesting to me that one of the reviewers reviewing the King book in The Guardian said that while the King book was good, what was really needed was a definitive biography of Coretta Scott King. And Johnny, that brings me to your book, where you have, have profiled both Winnie and Nelson. And, and when you look at the title, one might think it should be Nelson and Winnie, not Winnie and Nelson. So how did you decide to put the two, these two individuals together. Thanks, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for, for doing this and, and, and being here. It's really appreciate it. Hello, everybody. Um, to be honest, I don't quite remember. I, 
you know, it started as a biography of Nelson Mandela, and, and that was most related by the fact that once he died, I thought it was possible to write about him anew. It was, it was genuinely for the first time possible to write about him freely as a, as a human being, as a complex human being and not a saint. Because while he was alive, to do that would have kind of been an attack on him, and perhaps even on South Africa. Um, and in that sense, his death was, it sort of heralded a new era of writing about him. Um, so I started that and was really quite surprised to discover that while he was in prison, he didn't just grow to love his wife Winnie more and more, but he, his entire sense of self, his entire identity became wrapped around her. And I, I didn't expect that. I thought that he was such a profoundly political man. Um, I, I didn't realize that his, his identity as a husband and a lover would come to save him during those years in prison. Um, and yet the woman in his head was in his head. It was a fantastical version of somebody he increasingly didn't know. Um, so the marriage just seemed much more interesting than, <laughs> than him. <laughs> um, it, it seemed a way to, to him and to her. It, it just, the, more, the more research I did, the more compelling the marriage became. Can you, can you talk, because this is very much a first part of the book, talk about their physical beauty, both of them, and, and, and what, it, what, it meant in their, what, it, what it meant in their marriage or shaped their marriage, perhaps I should say. Well, their physical beauty was, was fundamental to who they were and to, to how they moved through the world and how they understood themselves in the world. You know, Nelson Mandela was six foot two, broad-shouldered, charismatic, walked into a room and everybody would turn, and he used that. He was a presentational political activist. He, in his Oldsmobile. Exactly. He dressed himself in very expensive bespoke suits, um, drove a ridiculously fancy car. Um, a lot of people thought him frivolous, but I think he understood the political power of celebrity. He understood what it meant in the 1950s for a black man to look like that. Um, he, he kind of intuitively understood its political meaning. Winnie's story was different. She, she arrived in her late teens in the 1950s as, as a woman who, for various reasons concerning her biography, did not believe that the fact that she was a woman should prevent her from having a place in public life and exercising power. Um, but as a woman in the 1950s, there were no avenues open to her. Um, and she learned very quickly to use her beauty. Her beauty at first was a source of danger. Um, you know, the severe men were dangerous to her and were everywhere in her life, from her mid-teens. And, and gradually, but very effectively, she, she learned to use her beauty as an instrument of power rather than as a source of danger. Um, so, so yes, their, their, their physical beauty was fundamental to who they were. And, and fashion. I mean, she understood. She was, when she was studying uh, to be a social worker, uh, I think that year, what you wrote that she was twice in the local paper. It was very unusual for some, but she she knew when she went when she was at a trial, when Mandela was on trial, or something. She knew that what she wore was very important. Absolutely, and and I mean you can't prove this, but I think part of why they were so attracted to each other was because they both understood how good they looked together. And, and not in a frivolous way, but in a in a powerfully political way. They understood that a that a beautiful black couple in front of a camera embodied aspirations, embodied the future, embodied the struggle. Um, I think at first they understood it only intuitively, um, but nonetheless, very very powerfully. They understood that their their union was was a political vehicle. I think from from the beginning they knew that. Nelson Mandela was married when he met her. He saw her at a bus stop and he drove by. I thought she was very, very beautiful. He was um, 18 years older than she was, so she was a very young, a very young woman. And they really only were together for about two years because then he had to go into hiding. Um, and then he was brought to trial and then he went into prison. So when, when you really think about this, you think that here's a couple, and he goes to prison in 1963 and is released on February 11th, 1990, after 27 years and six months in prison. And to think of that particular time in history, um, to be removed from 
from society in general, just in general, what that meant for her, which left her as seeing that she was the political leader of this struggle for liberation. Yeah, I mean, it is, as you say, so strange, two years together, and yet for the next 27 years, the gravitational pull they had on each other was profound. I mean, partly because their marriage was becoming a myth, a world-famous myth, which they themselves nurtured. Um, and so there's this real strangeness that their, their marriage was absolutely central to who they were, and therefore each other as individuals was central to who they were. But they really, in a profound sense, didn't know one another anymore. Um, such a strange paradox, such a strange thing to live with, the centrality of this marriage in each of their lives, but radically separate lives, um, politically growing further and further apart, uh, growing estranged in many ways, but still fundamentally important to one another. As a white woman, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in a society during apartheid and be tortured, which I think she was attacked. And um, just as I've asked you this question of what you grew up during apartheid, so what was that like? Um, uh, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, thanks, Uche, Jerry. Um, you in particular for driving this and, and bringing us all together, really. Thank you. You've been amazing for my book, for our books, and and you continue to be. Um, it's a... Uh, I mean, I... I think what you said uh, uh, earlier about how, how Nelson Mandela's death in 2013 opened up an opportunity to to reassess, to, uh, to look at him anew, look at the struggle afresh. Um, I think the moment post-2013 when South Africa was in the, in the grip uh, of a, in my view, profoundly corrupt administration um, gave, gave all of us a chance to to go back and, and stretch some things that we hadn't scratched at, that we hadn't uh, perhaps shone a light on uh, strongly enough or long enough um, uh, for, for people, those of us who were working and writing and sort of observing around the early 90s, to even rethink some of the things we believed were, were happening at that time. Uh, so, so I'm trying to avoid your question. I do want to, I mean, I, I don't know what it's, I do like, I think it's, it's so, it's so oppressive and, and and huge to live through a system like that. But it's also an interesting thing, and I've been thinking a lot about about a colleague of yours, a friend of mine, a friend of yours. Um, Jacob Clamini wrote a book in the in the 2200s about about growing up in a township called Katlerong in South in Johannesburg, um, and how and he he tried to write a book about his happiness as a child, as a child of a, of a single mother uh, in a township that was probably the most violent in South Africa in terms of political, um, uh, political violence and oppression and, and riots and so forth. And just terrible things happened in Tatlaw. But he writes this book about growing up and being, and being happy. So I, 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 I do want to tell you about just how terrible it was, but there were, uh, for some of us, we could escape through books, we could escape through other ways. I don't know, in the case of Winnie Mandela, whether it was possible. It, I, it wasn't, actually. She was constantly surveilled. She was banished to Brantford. Uh, uh, she detained for nearly 500 days uh, in solitary confinement. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible, dark and violent life. 
um, to be to, to be subjected to these things. So, so you know that I, I mentioned Jacob's book because I think it also just shines another light on the fact that people lived uh, horrible lives, and uh, but people lived and thrived and and found some joy and laughter in all that. Um, um, but but Winnie Mandela's life was was incredibly made made hard by cruel people and a cruel system and a violent system and a very violent society. And she was the well, well Nelson Mandela was in prison. She was the brunt of she bore the brunt of that in that family and in a lot of. And, and yet her life also had its joy and its happiness too. Absolutely. It had, it had love, it had friendship, it had children. Yeah. Um, she made part of that, and I think part of it, I mean, for me, part of it is that Winnie, many of us suspend our, our own need for love or our own recognition of the need for love and, and touch and physicality in our own lives. But when it comes to Winnie, and many of us who wrote and write, don't want to grapple with the fact that these are people who were in prison for 30 years. They left families and wives and and husbands and 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 there's a level I think where we don't want to humanize them. We're happy to humanize them in a glorified way, but not in quite. I mean, this, this was a very different position in a very patriarchal society for a young woman. So if she had a lover who was younger, the men all had lovers who were younger. I mean, it, it was hard to um, think about as, as a woman. Um, Johnny, you, you say that Mandela was chosen to lead, that the waters were really parted for him. What was it about his leadership? What 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 was what was it that attracted people to him? Well, when he was chosen to lead, there were only a couple of people who saw his potential. He he really was regarded as as too frivolous to lead by most people, um, except for one or two exceptions. And one was his great friend and mentor, Walter Sassoon. Um, and if Susulu's memory is correct, the, the moment the young 24-year-old Nelson Mandela walked into Susulu's office in the early 1940s, Susulu was an estate agent, he took one look at him and decided that he was going to make him a leader. Um, and it was, it was something about the fact that they both came from the Transkaya. Um, they both came from the upper echelons of that world. Um, and I think Susulu saw a big, charismatic man who carried himself with a with a royal bearing? <laughs> you could just see from the way the man walked that he, he had a royal upbringing. Um, it was very fine-grained local knowledge, um, and he really did part the waters. He made sure that Mandela, Mandela got a clerkship at a local law firm, got into university. Uh, when it looked like Mandela was going to get fired from the law firm, he got somebody else to get fired instead. Um, he the way it really was parted for him. Um, uh, as if there was a guardian angel on his shoulder. Um, and strangely, he, he understood his whole life that way. You know, he had a very difficult childhood. His, his father died when he was 12 years old and he was flung into a new world, away from his mother. Um, and his memories of childhood were completely idyllic. He, he understood that his mother loved him implicitly. He believed, probably incorrectly, that his father paved the way for success before he died. You know, when he was sitting in jail, with a possible death sentence hanging over him in the early 60s. He didn't for a second believe he was going to, have, to hang. Um, he was this unbelievably optimistic person uh, who believed that he was blessed. Um, and it, was, it, it helped him through life uh, always, from beginning to end. When, when he was on trial and he gave that long five-hour speech and he ended it, um, and you write that his lawyers um, really did not want him to say this, but I will read it. I have fought, I have fought against white domination. 
um, Nelson had written, and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society, which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal for which I, I live for and to achieve, but it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Well, he, he was, he'd only just learned that. He'd only just learned that the most powerful role he could play was that of a martyr. It, he was an extraordinary shapeshifter, um, especially at that time, the late 50s, early 60s, who he was changed very rapidly as he was trying to grapple with exactly what sort of persona would embody black South Africa. And he was doing it in competition with his great rival, Robert Zwukwe, the, the, the leader of the um, rival organization, the Pan-African Congress. And, and just a year or two earlier, Mandela thought that the way to trump Zwukwe, the way to embody black South Africa instead of Zwukwe was as a, as a violent person, as a revolutionary, um, as an underground agent of violent change. Um, and realized that he was losing that battle against Zwukwe and, and that a much more powerful embodiment, a much more powerful uh, persona was that of a martyr. Um, but he was prepared to play that literally to the death. Uh, but that's where those lines came from, a very late realization that it was it was the spectacle of suffering, of willful suffering, of, of, of standing up and saying, I'm going to die and not be afraid. That um, was much more powerful than violence um, for, for, uh, for a leader to, to be performed. So he was released from prison on uh, February 11th, 1990. And um, I have met two people who've spent a great deal of time in solitary confinement. Alfred Woodfox spent 40 years in Angola and wrote, wrote a wonderful book that I recommend called Solitary, the longest of the, the American who served the most time in solitary. And Helene Flowers, who at the age of 16 was given two life sentences and, and put in an adult prison um, and spent 17 years a lot in solitary. And is now a very successful artist but I, when I talked to Halim about um, what it was like being in solitary, he said, oh, Elizabeth, it was no problem. I would just call my board. <laughs> and his board was James Baldwin and Tony Morris. And, you know, and so you, you think about a man like Mandel spending this time and how it changed him as, as we now start looking at him out of prison. What, you know, what, what did you think about that? Well, he, he was never in solitary for those 27 years, but he was. So in solitary time. I mean, he spent a lot of time. Absolutely. But what he was was severed from his life. And in the 1950s, before he went to prison, he was a he was an astonishingly lively person who lived in the present, um, neglecting everything, neglecting family. He was a terrible father. He was a terrible husband. Um, he lived this high-octane, dangerous, frenetic life um, with a great deal of extramarital affairs, um, a great deal of dangerous politics, all wrapped together. He really lived in the present. Um, and for a person like that to be locked in prison is particularly cruel. Um, and what happened to him is he, he fell in love with his wife over and over again and completely idealized that for those two years together. Uh, in very disturbing ways, he, he remembered it wrong. <laughs> you know, he remembered coming home every evening and, and giving up politics in the evenings to be with his wife, which was never quite true. Um, and so by the time he left prison, he, his very sense of self, his sense of who he was, was, was attached deeply um, to a fantastical relationship with a woman who was now a stranger. Um, and it meant when he walked out at a personal level, he was really at sea. Um, he wasn't who he thought he was, she wasn't who he thought she was. There, there was a year or two of, of proper psychological instability. Um, you know, the, those 27 years were, it's a very dangerous thing to do to a human being. So, um, Justice, now let's turn to your book. Nelson Mandela is out of prison. They are negoti he's negotiating with uh, de Klerk, although I think at this time they weren't necessarily getting along, but there were negotiations going, uh, going on to end apartheid. And then we have this um, assassination. So 
and your book is the 10 days when you were 22-year-old journalists working on this. So perhaps you can tell us about um, the assassination of Chris Hani and his relationship to Nelson Mandela. Sure. Um, um, uh, Johnny mentioned uh, Robert Sobuka, who, was, uh, uh, who had been part of the people who started an organization called the PAC. And it was very um, African nationalist, um, militant. It was basically taking the limelight away from the ANC in the 1950s. Um, and, and as aware as Mandela was of Robert Sobuko's arrival as a, uh, a magnetic figure who, who particularly had, could tap into the anger of, of black South Africa. Um, in many ways, Nelson Mandela had, was very aware of the power of people like Sobukwe, um, uh, Steve Biko afterwards. And in the ANC, there were people like that. There were, uh, Chris Haney was a young leader who, young, um, I've been told not to say young. <laughs> he was 50, he was 50 uh, when he was murdered. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's young to me. Um, but, but, Chris Hani had, had this reputation in the ANC. He'd come through the organization in the late 60s, had been a combatant in the ANC's um, army, had become one of the leaders of the Umkonto uh, Wesizwe, and people loved him. They loved him in, in, in almost the same visceral manner that they had loved uh, that they had loved Sobukwe, you know, he, he would stand in front of a crowd and just galvanize it, uh, mm. say all the right things, uh, be militant, um, uh, pull them back a bit, uh, but he was, in many ways, he was the young Mandela who's, who could see the threats of, of the PACs and try to even kind of out, out, militant them in some ways and, and, and so forth. So in that period after 1990, you have a, you have a, a situation where, you know, it, there's massive hope and, and belief that, oh, we, at the end of apartheid, our leaders are going to negotiate this thing and we'll all be happy and hugging and it'll be fine. But 1990 happens and comes and goes and in fact, it's not like that. Um, um, the violence of the time uh, in KwaZulu Natal, for example, and Johnny has written a book about some of this. Um, you know, 4,000 people were dying every year in political violence, not just general crime. Uh, in 1991, same thing, it gets worse. It starts spreading to the rest of the country, to Johannesburg in particular, um, and the townships around that. Uh, the talks themselves stop and start and stop and start, um, and the violence continues. And and it's that context. It's it's within that context that that this young, brilliant, militant ANC leader, who Nelson Mandela loved, you know, who Nelson Mandela kind of, you know, always invited into meetings. Uh, he was fascinated by him. He was fascinated by the more militant young people in the ANC and he, uh, and you know, I mean, Richard Stengel is, is someone that both of us have referred to a lot in our, in our books. Um, you know, he says he didn't just like this militancy, he was also scared of it and so wanted to keep them, to keep them close to, he could say something that would that would not be in line with what the militants in the ANC wanted. But he'd be on a stage like this and he'd say it and say, we would like to say we will continue with Declerc even if we don't like him. And then it would be, ah, oh, well, yes, yes, the leader says so. But he, he played that game with, with people like his honey. And so, and so in, a, in, in that context, if you're on the if you were the right wing in South Africa and wanted to stop this process, difficult as it was, the, the march to peace, 
Um, killing Chrishani would be would be that spark that would just blow it all up. And and so on the 10th of April, uh, 1993, three years after Nelson Mandela had walked out of prison, um, uh, that's what happens. A basically neo-Nazi right-wing um, um, uh, 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 cell um, plot and kill uh, kill Chris uh, Hani, um, and South Africa essentially just we are in shock, uh, and it blows up, and it and we all wonder what were the past three years about. Um, so, so my motivations, in many ways, I, I, I like what you said about that re-examination of Nelson Mandela, but I, I've also always wanted to, and maybe this is a personal thing, I've always, I don't know whether it was growing under apartheid, growing up under apartheid and so forth, but I like, I like a hero, and a, I, I liked Winnie and Nelson Mandela and, and seeing your book. Was, was fantastic for me because I, I idolized them. It was like, oh, you know, one day, Justine, sorry, but one day I'll meet my Willie who will walk down. It really was a grand love affair. And, and, and for, for many of us growing up in the 1980s in particular, it was, what is love? This is love. This is, you know, I am. Um, um, Nelson Mandela was in prison uh, in the 80s, and and there was this one point where he sends out a message, and it's read by uh, one of his daughters in, in um, at Orlando Stadium. No, in fact, one of the stadiums at Germany Amphitheater. Yeah, um, and and his daughter reads this this message from Nelson Mandela, in which he it's very. It's these lines, the line you quoted about, you know, this is something I'm prepared to die for. And there's a line in that, in that uh, on the day in which he says, um, your freedom is my freedom. I think um, uh, you can't offer uh, freedom to a, an imprisoned man, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful line and it changes. You read that line and it's a game changer in the way you listen to what's happening. And, and you know, it was, wow, there is this, but essentially many of us as young people at that time were seduced by that love affair, were seduced by that idea of these two martyrs who, who, were, who were, you know, despite what apartheid had done, the worst of the worst, were still deeply, deeply believed in love. Um, and so forth. So, so in, in my own way, I wanted a true story, a real story of Nelson Mandela. But I wanted to write a story that's, that's, that's where good times over even, where the good guys win. Um, and so I wanted to, when, when Chris Honey was murdered, I was, it was my first day at work. I was a young reporter. I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of like finding myself. I was sent here, I was sent there. So I wanted to go back and, and re-reflect and reflect on it um, and, and try to capture the fear and the hope and the fear and the hope again and the dashed emotions of so many of us in that week um, and maybe capture what was happening in the nation as well. Um, I know, Justice, you've said that, um, you know, the, one of the things, well, every, it was Easter weekend, so people were away at their homes. Every, everyone was away. The clerk was on his ranch or wherever he was. Um, and he remained silent during this, basically. Although he asked Mandela's team if he would ask everyone to stay at home. You know, just you know, go to your house and, and stay in. And Mandela said, I can't do that. I mean, they need to be out in the street. I mean, you know, they need to, to um, you know, understand what's going on. But because the clerk didn't say anything, Mandela went on television, and I do have his, I was going to ask you to read this, but I, I have it here. 
he, he made this very short speech and it really positioned him as a leader and um, it was probably, it was right after that that they decided when the election would be held, wasn't it? That, I mean, this kind of helped yeah. generate some of this. Yeah, I, I, can, can I say, it? I like this because the, the, the story itself is, it's this shorthand of Nelson Mandela as, as a hero, as the, you know, he didn't, he was stoic and he, he survived 27 years in jail and yet you read it, you read your book and you realize that extreme pain and so forth that, that came with that and the brokenness essentially of, of what that system and that, that imprisonment did. But, but part of the story of that week is that is that Nelson Mandela is the hero of the week and he, he gives this amazing speech and so forth and almost every telling and retelling of that story is about how exactly Nelson Mandela, Trisani is murdered, the country blows up, Nelson Mandela gives the speech. But actually, the speech that Nelson Mandela gave that day on the 10th of April was was just the most bland, weak speech that he could ever have given. It, it did nothing, well, there were three things. First of all, he hung around, and, and I remember, Jody, I don't know if you remember this, but about five years ago I met you uh, at, at Angus Gibson's house in Johannesburg, and, uh, and I said, oh, this is what I'm doing, and he said, Oh, that's the week Nelson Mandela was absolutely terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you're absolutely right, because Nelson Mandela, on the first day when he gets the news that Chris Hani, that Chris Hani has been murdered, he, he's unsure of himself. And, and this is the Nelson Mandela line. He's like me, he's like many of us. He's unsure what to do. He calls a whole bunch of people. He's, all the ANC leaders are in Johannesburg and they're saying, come to Joburg and speak to the people now. And he kind of prevaricates, he's not sure what to do. Then he goes and sees um, Chris Hani's family, his father and mother and others, uh, commiserates with them, spends a long time. Then he goes back to uh, the airport, this is in the Eastern Cape in near Kunu. He sits at the airport and waits for another militant ANC, ANC leader, Bantu uh, Olomiso, because this was someone that he also believed, you know, there are some here, Trishani, Bantu Olomiso, you've got to keep them close, otherwise they could, they'll burn up this country. So he waits for, He's thinking and he's calculating. He waits for uh, Bantu Holomisa. And by the time they get on a plane and fly to Johannesburg, it's late. So they've missed the 7 o'clock news bulletin. They've missed the 8 o'clock news bulletin. Only, he only gives the speech uh, that he hasn't. He reads it in the car on the way to the TV studios. He can't read it properly. Um, there's a video of it if you want to watch it on, on YouTube and he's kind of slouching like this. Um, you write about Nelson Mandela's love of, of clothes, of presentation. Um, he's wearing the suit that Barack Obama wore uh, in 2014 when people say a tan suit. That people said, oh, this is terrible. He's wearing a tan suit, he's wearing a very Flowery. He's not Nelson Mandela, the guy who said, no, but what tie goes with this shirt? <laughs> he's not that, he's, he's not, it's uncharacteristic Nelson Mandela. And he gives the speech and it's not great. It's, it's, it's too late for anyone to, to actually, they were playing, um, um, I think it's called David. It, it was Easter, so it was some, it was a very religious uh, movie about from the Bible, some depiction of it. Um, and so, you know, it, just no one heard that speech, so no one actually listened to Mandela saying, oh, be peaceful and so forth. And he 
has the presence of mind to then say, this didn't work out. Um, and only three days later does he say, I want to go back on television, and actually doesn't go back live, uh, shoots the tape at the ANC head office, and then sends, it gets um, given to the SABC to play on the APM. And this is where this speech, which again contains the, you know, just one, three lines that change pretty much the idea of what, what kind of crisis we're going, going through. A white man full of prejudice and hate came to our country and committed a deed so foul that our whole nation now titters on the brink of disaster. Um, I'd like to just, I want to open it up for questions so that we can really make this a, a round <laughs> discussion here. Um, I, I understand, thank you, I understand that uh, the youth in South Africa are really not, are looking, looking not at Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela as the leaders that they were, that they feel that possibly they've sold out a little bit. And Winnie is, you know, they're thinking of somebody like Winnie who is this strong militant person. Um, is, that, is that true or can you describe um, Nelson Mandela's legacy now there? <laughs> yes, that's for you. <laughs> well, I mean, there's enormous dissolution with, with the current order and, and for so many good reasons. Um, and it's almost inevitable that people are going to question the founders of the new order and the deal they made and what they did. And, and that is happening in, you know, very deeply, especially among young people and especially young, young university-educated people, young middle-class people. Um, and, and the disillusion with Mandela there is, is deep and, and profound and it's not going anywhere soon. Um, I think it is inevitable. I think that people's reputations ebb and flow. Um, I, I think it's partly unjust. I, I think that actually Nelson Mandela triumphed in those negotiations. He defeated his adversary hands down. The National Party went into those negotiations not wanting democracy. But firstly, they wanted to stretch out the negotiation process for a decade until the ANC lost its luster and just became ordinary and people became frustrated with it. You know, at the beginning, de Klerk thought that he could remain in power with a coalition of conservative black parties. Uh, the constitution that they wanted was not a democratic constitution. There wouldn't be no president, there'd be a revolving chair. There'd be an upper house where everybody under the sun was represented, about 14 different ethnic groups. And, and they got none of that. Mandela won hands down because he was very, very tough. Um, and to the extent that things have gone wrong, they happened later. Um, you know, I think the founding was a pretty good founding. Um, and as Justice's book shows so powerfully, it, the alternative really was deep systemic destruction, and it could easily have happened. Um, so I think it's sad that young people remember Mandela this way. Um, but I'm kind of philosophical about it. It's, it was going to happen. Um, do we have questions? Or can we open the conversation? Yes. Um, hi. Um, my name's Jody, um, former colleague of Justice. <laughs> um, actually, a follow-up to this question. It's easy to be philosophical about how young people are feeling um, about the Nelson Mandela's, even Winnie Mandela. How, how important is it for us to try and make sure that their legacy remains something that is fundamental to what South Africa is? When that disillusionment is so entrenched right now, I've been back, I went back to South Africa for the first time um, in over a year, about a month ago. And when you speak to young people, 
they don't want to know about Nelson Mandela. And I was at a university and some of the students said to me, oh, go back to the US because they're the only people who still celebrate Nelson Mandela. We don't know. Where does the responsibility lie on us who remember that time to ensure that the young people of today also remember it the way that we do? Good uh, um, thanks, Jody. I, I mean, I think that the two things. I think that disillusionment is is with how is with how South Africa has turned out. We 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 need to confront our own failures as a generation who were coming up in the in the nineteen nineties. That that the South Africa the post two thousand and seven South Africa failed very quickly, very precipitously, and and that and that in many ways we are the we are part of some of the architects of of what happened, and so and so I I think I don't even think it's about Nelson Mandela. It's about our conception of what a good society is and and whether we can come to an understanding with with the young generation of South Africans that that good society is one that you build. It's not a it's not one that you turn around to the founders or to the architects of our constitution, which remains, in my view, possibly the most progressive constitution in the world. Um, the most, I, I, I can't think of any country in the world that enjoys what I enjoy as a South African and gives me the possibility to make and remake every time my life. And yet, and yet, that generation doesn't see it. So I, 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 I think part of the work is to is to move the focus from, oh, Nelson Mandela should have done this. What should he have done? The idea that Nelson Mandela should have said, expropriate without compensation. I mean, my friends, many in here who have studied economics at very high levels will tell you, it, it's such a pipe dream to have believed that that would have happened. But that's part of the populist narrative about 1994 that is going on. So, I don't know, I think we need to do more talking, uh, intergenerational talking, perhaps, um, because I don't think we, I think, I think in many ways we've moved away from that conversation, some of us have. Anyway. We have another question. <coughs> um, and, and perhaps I want to challenge you a little bit. Just, I mean, Johnny, I think it's interesting that you say that uh, it was in Adiba's death that you were able to kind of go back and look at it as a, as a person, I guess, as opposed to a construct, a, 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 a mythical construct. And, and, and I guess my question to both of you is that to what extent have, have we as storytellers and as journalists, uh, as, 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 as scribes of our country, failed young people? Um, because we engaged in the myth making, and in fact, just as you at times have said that we suffer from an exceptionalism in South Africa, but to what extent are we guilty of that exceptionalism because of how we wrote? Specifically about Mandela, I mean, I remember one of my favorite stories about him that that, that, that reminds me of who he really is is when the youth league um, uh, was upset about the Springboks and they wanted he wanted us to use the name of the Springboks and Mandela's response was to basically go to the Secretary General of the ANC and say, "Cut off their funds." <laughs> <laughs> so this wasn't entirely kind of like a democrat. 
right? He was, he was, he was an imperial chief who, when he, when he wanted to, was like, because he's on the island. So we can blame young people, but how much is it, how much of it is about us as the scribes of South Africa who, 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 who created uh, a, an imperfect, a perfect imperfection about somebody, and, and have therefore kind of left young people to 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 to, to understand they want to kind of go after uh, an unrealistic thing, and and, and, and particularly if you join I guess my question is this: that now that you are, as you rightly or, or as you say, are able to look at him again now that he's dead and, and write about him as really much more interesting person as a human being, right, as opposed to kind of fossil. How much have we let down young people? Uh, it's a very rambling question, but don't stop there. No, it's a very clear and interesting question. Um, you know, counterfactuals are impossible. Who, who knows where we would be without the myth of Mandela? But, but I think the myth was necessary. Um, I mean, it was an impossible transition. And all sorts of things made it possible, a great deal of skill and wisdom on both sides. But, but I think one of the things that made it possible was how mesmeric he was, how strange and larger than life. I, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to describe what the feeling was when he walked into a crowd in the first couple of months after he was in prison, uh, after he came out of prison. The, the charge, the electricity, the otherworldly experience, and, and that wasn't because of who he was, flesh and blood human being, it was the myth that he embodied and that only he could have embodied. And, and I'm not sure that South Africa could have made the leap into a new world without that fantasy. It really was a fantasy, but, but maybe a necessary one. Um, you know, all myths and all fantasies you know, are, are mortal. They, they don't last forever. But, but maybe that one we needed. Um, but in terms of writing about him now as a human being, you know, in writing this book, I discovered what a deeply imperfect person he was, and and you know some quite unpleasant things that he did, that that made me admire him more, really. Um, I mean, to know how angry and how sad and how torn apart he was uh, in the early 1990s, and how just lifelong discipline got into. <coughs> put that all away and put on a mask. And the mask was the opposite of what he felt. It was this avuncular, cheerful man, light, putting his arm around everybody, you know, this sort of na naivety, oh, I'm so famous. Um, it was, you know, that was all an act, and it was a supremely professional act. It was a thoughtful act. He, he it was his calculation about what his country needed. It was real service. And, and we should judge that critically. Was that the right thing to do? Should he have, in fact, shown some of his anger? I mean, maybe, maybe those are difficult questions. Um, but yeah, I'm, I ended this book full of admiration for him um, and for his myth. Can, can I just say quickly, uh, I mean, if you think about the anger that you see among the young people that you, you talk about, is it that Nelson Mandela or is it about the fact that that the South Africa in my, in my cutoff, the post-2007 South Africa lost, lost its way, and, and that some of the... I'm, I'm not sure that Nelson Mandela was solely responsible for the constitution that we had. If you think about constitutionality in South Africa, and you have to think about people like Albie Sachs, you have to think about um, all kinds of people who contributed and wrote and gave us this incredible piece of work. If you think about state building, you have to think about Tabon Beki and the work and, 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 and effort that people like him put into, into make. if you talk about the ANC's non-racialism, you have to go back to Oliver Tambo and others. So Nelson Mandela was a big chunk of it and part of the, the in, in a way, the central part of it. But I think so much work was done by so many people that it's not Mandela's only. I think young people, part of the problem, I think, is getting around confronting what is the real issue in South Africa. And, and part of it is that we're not growing economically, we're not, um, inequality is increasing, and all these things that we talk about and write about all the time. 
and, and confronting that, uh, I don't think has that much to do with history. It's got a lot to do with the past 15 years and how we've conducted ourselves and perhaps failed to pull back on some of the practices that derailed us. Um, but I don't, I, I think, I think, I, I want to agree with you. It's, it's I, I don't think it's the founding 1994 fathers, as it were. I think it's hugely part of where we went wrong and allowed ourselves to go home post-2007. Look, I don't know if I'm, I'm belaboring this point a little bit too much, but to try to, to tie in, I think that the, the question is really about, and I get your point, Johnny, about the counterfactual, but did we rely too much on the magic, the myth, as opposed to the Constitution, which requires work, professionalism, service, um, so, so that's the question to tie in uh, justice to you. Like, did we effectively just allow it to sit with the magic? And part of the magic is, by the way, uh, I think for me, issues around accepting chiefs, for example. Uh, customary, a traditional law system that was a colonial uh, construct and the kind of you know, magical elements of this rather than hard work, the constitutional service, etc. I don't, I, I don't know whether there's anything else to say about that. I, I really want to put a plug in there for the constitution. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I think compromises like, like the, the traditional leadership stuff, um, I think I think yes, uh, there were compromises made there. But can I say that constitution is the constitution that that the myth of Tabombeki for for people who Tabombeki is the successor to Nelson Mandela, you know, prince in the ANC. For people like me, Tabombeki was perhaps even more magical than, than Nelson Mandela. I had lots of magic going on in my life. <laughs> but Tabo Becky was, was magical. He was this guy, went into exile, incredibly well-educated, read books. When you met him, he talked to you a bit about literature and about law and about economics. Oh, my word, he was amazing. But when he said HIV does not cause AIDS or the virus does not, it was that constitution that, that many people in this room, I can recognize, who's, who used that constitution to say, you, you know, shimmering great prince of the ANC cannot do that. And that constitution stopped it. That, I, I, think, I, I think there have been many, many years wrongs and mistakes made, but I think that constitution is not. I think it's an enabler of, of huge, amazing things that make and can continue to make our society an amazing society. Uh, my name is Ruchi and I'm from India. And just listening to the dialogue between all of you, I just wanted to tell you what's going on in India for a segment, which is that we're on the cusp of fascism there, and uh, the people who uh, we have elected, the, the party which assassinated Mahatma Gandhi as the ruling party, and there are textbooks now in many parts of India in which Gandhi is a traitor, and the person who assassinated him is the patriot. And that's being taught to 15-year-olds and 12-year-olds in schools. And one of the reasons this party came to power was they kept saying that for 70 years, nothing was done. And they blamed it all on the fact that Gandhi and Nehru and the people around him didn't do anything. They did do a lot. And then there were certain global and internal compulsions, the legacy of colonial, colonialism, really which continues to play out. And uh, one of the things which I'm trying to find in India, and which you can still find in South Africa, is that I'm trying to find people who do remember the difference between the time when we were ruled by the British to when we are independent now and can even try experiments like this. And uh, there are very few people left who can actually talk about that time versus this time, like my 90-year-old father but not many people around. And I would really, really tell all of you 
that those of you who have lived in apartheid, don't be reluctant to talk about it. Write as many things you can for young people about the difference of living under apartheid, the struggle that Mandela went, whatever flawed human being, uh, you know, flamboyant human being, Vinny organizing outside, people have to know it. They forget it very, very soon and there will be no one left to talk about it. I would like to thank Alex Waters, our technical producer, for his commitment to The Short Fuse, and Bill Marks at The Arts Fuse for his financial support. The Short Fuse can be found through The Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism, and through Apple, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can support us through The Short Fuse podcast website. A link is in the episode notes. Follow us on Instagram and through LinkedIn. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. Okay.